Hello everyone and welcome to Ed Talks UK, part of Hearts for Learning's podcast series. My name is Marie-Claire Kelly and I work in the Learning Innovation team in Hearts for Learning and I'll be your host for today's podcast. I'm joined today by Martin Galway, who is a teaching and learning advisor in the Primary English team. And Martin has a deep interest in bridging effective principal classroom practice and insights from research into reading, writing and spoken language. So hello, Martin. Hello, lovely to join you. Indeed. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what you do here at Hearts for Learning and some of the highlights of your career to date? Yeah, sure. So I'm a primarily I'm a primary English advisor. I mean, that is my working title day to day. So I work as part of a team, quite a big team um, in terms of the national context. And we deal with all matters related to primary literacy, reading, writing, spoken language that would involve going into school and working with teachers and other colleagues, subject leaders, whatever the need may be, um, delivering training, delivering inset, speaking nationally sometimes carrying out research projects. We, we do a bit of everything, really. We're quite diverse, even though we are just focused primarily on English. Fantastic. And just so we're, we're clear, today we are recording a podcast ahead of the National Primary English Conference. Um, but I know that you want to talk about empathy today. Why is it that you want to discuss empathy well, it's because the the conference itself takes a main theme. So, I mean, just to share its title, uh, the main title is That's Me. And then it's got the subtitle Ensuring Diverse Representation Across the Primary English Curriculum. And that's a really important aim. And it's a name that so many people have been doing great and good and hard work to to move forward over decades, not just in recent years. But it's gained real momentum in recent years, thanks to the work of people like Darren Chetty, who's one of our speakers, and Farah Sarouk, who works for CLPE and has been instrumental in um, bringing to bear a report that looks exactly at this. In fact, several reports that highlights, you know, that there are still many, many issues and lots of work still to be done to increase representation of all kinds of social groups within literature. Now, the conference focuses specifically on that's me seeing ourselves in books, because that's a really important construct, a really important thing that children get to do. You know, otherwise, all kinds of misconceptions can arise or you can feel sidelined from the curriculum or the sorts of discussions that are happening in school. And that's really key. But if we go right back to a key influential figure in this field, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, she actually spoke about um, mirrors. We need mirrors, so we need to see ourselves. She talked about windows, so we need to be able to see out into, into other lives, into other, other social situations. And fiction is primarily about, you know, things operating in the social world. And we also need sliding doors because, of course, books also can transport you, open your eyes to all kinds of other contexts, all kinds of possibilities. So that's a really handy uh, metaphorical way of looking at it, you know, this notion of mirrors, windows, sliding doors. The conference is very heavily focused on the mirror side of things. But actually, if we're doing this sort of work, we're going to enjoy some benefits in terms of empathic responses from children as readers, from children as collective groups, working with the adults in their schools to develop deeper understanding of texts, deeper connections to the materials they're exposed to. And in the process, not just develop a better sense of the world, there's going to be social benefits, so it's going to actually, you know, have a have a, a benefit to society if we have children encountering 
you know, wider spheres of people and places and contexts, but actually also there's cognitive benefits. And that part perhaps hasn't been discussed quite as much as might be helpful because not everyone, sadly, is sufficiently persuaded by this is important for society. Some people might question, is that what school's for? Well, I think it is. But depending on your beliefs, if we can say that actually there's a, an individual benefit to the child, a benefit to society, and actually a benefit to educational outcomes, I think we're just on a win-win-win basis if we work to develop empathy. And so I just wanted to add that on as a, a thematic element that, that sits nicely with the, the themes of the conference. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so clear also that um, you know children do need that that sliding door to, to take them to another um, reality. There's the, the cliche about a reader lives a thousand lives and I think that is so important. Um, so just to be clear, what do you actually mean when you talk about empathy? Okay, so I mean, there's lots of ways to characterise it. If you, if, if, you know, there's only so much we can say in a podcast, but one thing I would certainly mention is there's a great organisation called Empathy Lab. And for teachers and school leaders, it's well worth visiting their website when you get a chance, because I know how busy and frantic things truly are at the moment. But Empathy Lab, you know, there may be some people that haven't looked there because I'm sure they recognise the importance of empathy, but might feel in the in the list of order of things I have to do and the actually, the, let's be honest, the firefighting that's going on at the moment, empathy might not feel like it's right at the top or it might feel like something that we do anyway. But Empathy Lab's there, it provides some really good insights into what do we really mean by empathy? Why is it important? And it does things like provide activities and really good reading lists that are updated yearly to support people in identifying texts that really lend themselves towards developing empathy and exploring, you know, very different sorts of um, social social contexts, social situations and the people that operate within them. Now, the reason um, I mention that is because I won't be able to fully define it here, but I just want to draw upon work of um, a really great book, Keith Oatley. It's called Such Stuff as Dreams. It's a pretty heavy book. Such Stuff as Dreams, The Psychology of Fiction. And he draws upon the work of um, other psychologists. So one a, a psychologist called Ma, who really looked into, you know, what sorts of emotions books provide us with. And sometimes those emotions can be categorised as witness emotions. So we feel sympathy. You know, we might see a situation. Like imagine you're watching a film and there's a, a funny moment or, or a, a moment of fret. You very often you sit outside of that. You you know you're feeling something towards the characters. You're worried for them. You're concerned for them. But you're not connecting in the way whereby it's as if you've been transported and put into their body and you're experiencing what they're experiencing. Except for one particular kind of film. So I'm going right back to my old days as a film lecturer here. There used to be controversy around certain types of horror films, quite horrible films that would put you as if you were in the body of the killer. You could see through their eyes. And there was a bit of an argument there that, you know, this is dangerous, this is encouraging a connection with the murderer. But there were some challenges to that by a really interesting psychologist, Carol Jane Clover, who, who actually, when she looked into it, she felt, no, that device stops us being so much of a witness and puts us almost directly into the, the shoes of the victim. We feel this vicarious terror of what they're about to experience. And that's what we mean by empathy. Keith Oakley draws upon an example of... If we were, say we were in a tall building looking down at a car accident, we would feel all kinds of emotions, we'd know the seriousness of it and we'd be extremely concerned. But if we knew our children were in there, 
we we would project in a different way we would be far more likely to go in a deeper level as if we were in there you know it would be a much more tangible immediate sort of response if i take that into children's fiction or any kind of fiction it's it's this magical thing that happens that as a book as you move through a book and i talked about this um some time ago around the um, polly ho yen's boy in the tower which is a great book for empathy it's got a central character you really come to care about this young uh, boy called Addy who looks after his mother and is trying to cope with school and then a kind of catastrophic event as well. So it's a lot on his shoulders. At the start of the book, you're generally feeling compassion. But bit by bit, my experience and my experience of working with children, you come to empathise on a almost painfully deep level with Addy's situation. And it's that, it's that transportation that I'm really interested in because it's healthy for society that we can connect more. It's desirable for society. I mean, if you're going into a, a place of work, being able to anticipate how people might think and feel is going to be vital for problem solving and collaborative working and whatnot. But it also has cognitive benefits. If we can connect really deeply with text, that's the sweet spot. There's loads of evidence, and Keith Oatley covers this in great depth, loads of evidence to show that not only do people that read lots of fiction tend to be more emotionally mature and... Um, sophisticated and have greater understanding but they actually tend to achieve better more generally because they have that deep connection therefore they enjoy reading on a deeper level they read more and then we all know the benefits that come from reading more and it's fiction that makes a makes a real difference in this regard fiction that's really focused on characters and that that opportunity to to live more than one life at once that's that's it in a nutshell really yeah so it's that sort of move from sympathy to cognitive empathy where we can understand where people are coming from and why they might feel a certain way, but then more importantly to effective empathy where we're actually experiencing things for ourselves alongside the characters in a story. That's it, absolutely. And and I just want to briefly, if that's all right, link it into things like our Reading Fluency Project because... Some people have experienced it and seen the benefits of it and the, the real quick gains that can be had for children that have been struggling with comprehension. Children that haven't really activated all the things you'd want them to activate in the course, in the act of reading. And so if you look at it from the outside and you haven't experienced it, you might think it's quite mechanical. You might have heard of echo reading or choral reading and think, OK, I'll do these techniques and biff bang, I'm going to you know get a gain in reading. But actually, the project itself doesn't just do that. It doesn't just, you know, use a few techniques. It's it's structured so that there are sessions that are linked explicitly into, OK, we can do this now with our voices when we read, but we also are now tapping into the meaning. They, they use big questions to make sure there's an activation of meaning. So we're doing that in order to help all children or as many children as possible be able to you know achieve full literacy as swiftly and efficiently as possible because of all the wider benefits and joys that come from that. And this is something along those lines. This is something we're working on, or certainly I'm working on, within research I'm doing around reading, work I'm doing in schools, and on a project with Jane Andrews, one of my colleagues, on the Year 4-5 writing programme, where we're now at the point where we're saying, OK, we're seeing these gains in writing alongside reading. How much more can we tap into the work to develop a deeper understanding and connection with the text, and then transfer that into that deeper... Um, connection manifesting in our own writing so that we're kind of getting the virtuous circle complete I can read understand and strongly connect and I can appreciate that I want that to happen with my writing I'm going to write with the reader in mind and think what do they need so that they're having a similar um, response from my my work if that makes sense 
yeah, to, to trigger that response. Um, fantastic. So having seen the, the amazing results that Reading Fluency, for example, has had, um, I know that it, it does have a huge impact. So it's interesting to think about how the writing programme might also have a similar impact. But in general, outside of education, why do you think empathy is, is so important? There's a, there's a writer called Will Storr, and he says that one of the best medicines against tribal behaviour, so behaviour where people are almost in groups that are sometimes pitched against each other, is um, a developing an awareness of other lives, and that one of the best ways to do that is through the work of fiction. And so that is part of the case we're making, that you know we're seeing actually, you know we don't have to look or or search around too hard to see the evidence of that. You know, we talk about culture wars, we look on Twitter and you see binary arguments where people aren't, they, I think sometimes we think we're debating and are we really, are we really having a dialogue? Sometimes we're not because we're so entrenched in our own positions that we find it hard to see where the other side are coming from or we make too many assumptions. So I've kind of got this long-term wish that not we don't want to make the world all vanilla and neutral, it's not about that, but that we're able to actually, you know, hear, appreciate, and, you know, maybe modify our, our stance, but maybe not, depending on the situation. So he, he recommends fiction. And then alongside that, and this, I think, again, goes to the themes of the conference, there is a really great um, TED Talk by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, where she talks about explicitly the danger of the singular story. And I, I don't want to reduce her TED Talk down too, too drastically for the, you know, a bite-sized part of a podcast. So please watch it. But because it's very amusing, she's a great speaker and she flips some of our preconceptions around, you know, oh, I think I understand this country because I read a book about it once. She does this really funny anecdote where where someone someone reduced her country of origin down to the one book they'd read. And she said, oh, I know it must be awful for you living in America because I read American Psycho and I just don't know how you cope with all these psychopaths running around. <laughs> and so, so she does it with a light touch. But what she says fundamentally, and this is really this is the crux of this talk, I guess, that I'm hopefully sewing together if you reduce any group or person down to you know a singular story you diminish them you you almost rob them of being a three-dimensional entity and what you do by doing that is you place this distance you other them and we talk about othering a lot you know when we talk about identity but you you, you make them something that you might have sympathy with you know it's a bit like when sometimes sometimes in the pursuit of diversifying the choices available in libraries you might find that that translates into let's get some books about the migration experience. And then that leads to misconceptions, especially, you know, for younger children about, oh, here's a group we need to feel sorry for and da, 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 da. No, let's connect with them. Because in the TED Talk, Dietschy basically makes the point that you, if you reduce people in that way, you highlight difference rather than connection. And let's, let's just linger on that word a second. You know, you go back to Ian Forster, his mantra was only connect. And we know in just about every reading resource ever produced for reading training, they talk about making connections and background knowledge and whatnot and what you understand in the world. Well, we need to see multiple accounts and we need to have that available so that you can begin to appreciate the actual richness of humanity. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned Adichie's TED Talk, actually. Um, that's my favourite TED Talk of all time. And uh, I, I love at the beginning she discusses... Um, reading lots of books from a very young age and how um, she never saw herself in the books but that all of the characters in the books that she read drank a lot of ginger beer and talked about the weather. <laughs> 
and yeah, it always it always um it it fits so well with that idea of if you are constantly othered in in literature, it's very difficult to establish a strong sense of self in literature. So I think it links so closely to what the conference, for example, is discussing. You know, that idea of being able to see yourself in a story and not simply as an other, um, you know, as as the lead. So moving on from that, um, we've, we've talked about the importance of empathy in terms of your concept of self and in terms of the world in general, but why do you think that's important within the education system? Why is it important in our schools to foster that? I mean, I could, I could, I could give an account on several levels. I could go for a personal anecdote, so I'm going to do that because you know sometimes it helps to be shamelessly emotional. So, and I make sure I'm not going to get emotional because these are real children. But I remember, do you know the little match girl? Sometimes I, I ask people that and they don't know it, and I'm like, how can this be? So, for the, if anyone out there doesn't know it, a go and read it, you know, and for shame. But b um it's it, it's it's a hans christian anderson story and what you need to know is hans christian anderson would write about people in really dire straits a bit like dickens there was a sort of social reformist element you know and so the little match girl is in a tragic position and this is for an adult audience so i just give you a if you wanted to summarize a story one way you could summarize it is it's the dying moments of a girl who is too hungry and cold to live another night and it is a story that is so heartbreakingly written that i used to have to judge me not for being an emotional wreck but I used to have to take a deep breath before reading it to my class I had to make sure I didn't look at my teaching assistant because she would cry I need to hold it a bit together it's not a bad thing to cry but you know it's not the best way to get to the end of a story in a snotty mess so I would channel myself get it out and I just remember this one time I was reading it to my class and in year six it would have been and as I looked up at the end this one girl had this single tear slowly going down her face and it was just this small moment of beauty in the classroom and I felt this intense connection that we'd connected with the text and I'm afraid to say at that very moment another child in the class shouted out what's her problem like that <laughs> and and when I say that in 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 training sessions because I sometimes share this anecdote um there's a sort of bristling and I'm like yeah I bristled inwardly but I had to suppress that because actually that's a legitimate question this child isn't actively tapping into what's just happened so I remember, I won't say the name, so I'll say X. Um, I remember saying, okay, X, that could be a good question if you can ask it in a nicer way. Would you like to ask why, why they feel that way? And they did. And this particular child had shown that they hadn't been able to connect on the same level, but, you know, this other child was able to explain it. So there's something about these dialogic opportunities that we must try not to shut down, that we must build space for to see, actually, we're not all coming along with the text, but by talking with those that have been able to, we might be able to take the understanding forward. So that's a practical argument for it. But actually, also, the more I research, you know, things like theory of mind, which is essentially a concept around how well able you are to appreciate emotions, and certainly this applies in fiction, is increasingly coming through on so many different papers as a, a core component in reading. And there's some very old research, again, I keep going back to Keith Oatley, but it's such a packed book, but that looked at people that read fiction tended to be stronger in terms of their emotional responses and their emotional understanding. And then they had to control for things like, um, you know, do, is it because these people, you know, are, are they are, are they 
particularly sociable or lonely. And what they found is that they they're sociable, but they have quite intense social connections. Okay, so they 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 that empathy seems to translate into the real world. There were also cognitive benefits, not one hundred percent universally. But what I'm saying there is that in certain strands that they were measuring, there might be elements that weren't coming out as noticeably stronger. But globally, there were these benefits. I mean, you can keep drilling in. They found, and this might really please the Lord of the Rings fans out there, um, that, that people that love fantasy, really, this came through really strongly. They also were worried that, you know, is this just an effect of, well, they're spending all their time reading, so they're just learning about emotions, but are they actually social sociable beings? Well, no, we found that that was addressed. And actually, they found that nonfiction um, just didn't have the same effects. It was doing something differently. And it's because, you know, the world of fiction is very much grounded in the social experience. That would be true of some nonfiction, but not in quite the same way, unless perhaps you're looking at case studies, I guess. So I think there's this educational benefit. And my this is just my logic now. I haven't read a paper that's particularly led me to this conclusion. But I'm just thinking, OK, so if we're connecting more deeply and we're that story of the little match girl, that was actually quite an enjoyable experience. Now, I did feel a shift in the class. By the end of the year, that boy was a real poet, I might add. There's a little punchline, but it's too long to go into today. I just think, though, if we get them connecting more, aren't they more likely to enjoy it on a deeper level? You know, like The Boy in the Tower, that book has had an effect like no other in schools I work with. And there's a school in Stevenage, so local to us. They had such a profound response to that book they did this amazing thing they actually bought every single child in year five the author's next book and then they had the author come in and what those children were coming up with was profound and i do think it was something about the quality of the book the nature of the journey they went on with that child what it opened up for them and it gave them a hunger for more the more kids read the better they do and that's my logic my little leap of logic it's like okay we can foster that deeper connection with text great we'll gain comprehension scores we can take that into the writing. Great. We've got better writing standards. Actually, more meaningfully in the long term, if we can get children more connected to reading and see the benefits, that's going to take care of a lot more for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with the non-fiction and fiction aspects of that too. My background is a secondary English teacher and um, I tended to find that actually the emotional responses that you got from fiction were consistently stronger because we live in a world where so much non-fiction happens on a 24-hour basis. We've almost become saturated to some of the the horrors and and terrible things that we sometimes read about in non-fiction. And my own experience of that was teaching a a group of um, senior pupils, Martha Gellhorn's Dachau, and um, they, they just didn't get it until a group of them went to Auschwitz on a, a trip and came back and we reread Dachau and the group who had been to Auschwitz did a presentation on their, their trip and their experiences and suddenly it had much more of an impact because the people in the class associated with their peers and, and could understand the character and that tended to be done automatically in, in fiction. Um, you know, there was the association with a particular character and therefore with their situation and with their emotional response to it. So that's really, really interesting. A couple of things strike me. Number one, I just need to say, you know, we know that reading also, you know, rests on contextual knowledge, background knowledge, understanding. 
And so, of course, there's a big role for nonfiction and children need to learn how to read nonfiction because that is going to be vital across the curriculum and some legitimately just prefer it. And that's also fine. Nonfiction has some real benefits in some research, such as um, that carried out by Gemma Moss at UCL. She she looked closely at what what um, younger children did with nonfiction and found that they found it more sociable because you imagine a nonfiction book spread open, double page spread. Three or four children can talk about that, engage with it and talk about that on a much more equal footing, regardless of their current reading attainment, because one might be looking at a process diagram, one might be looking at pictures and captions, one might, and it removes some of the, the, the less fortunate effects that can come out of things like, you know, banded books. But the other thing that really struck me from what you were saying is that by having that experience, something that's abstract, and for some children, if they read really passively, the abstraction is like almost purely I've just I'm reading the words as if it's just something to be performed, but there's no nothing underneath it for me to lock onto into something that's far more tangible, not quite concrete exactly, but quite concrete in the mind, if that makes sense. And and in terms of, you know, um, technologies, you know, that's that's the sort of area where you start to think about how how things like virtual reality and, you know, creating these experiences for children might might be of use in their their understanding of text, I suppose. Um, and making it more realistic for them. Just in terms of empathy, I mean, I know I'm sold, um, but if I was looking to introduce um, resources that would improve empathy and empathic responses in my classroom, how do you think I should start? Okay, so I need to do a mental list here because there's so many things I could, <laughs> I could just spew out a whole range. So number one, I, I'm formed by the giants you know so oh, where do i begin bars and um corks reader in the writer which unfortunately is out of print but clp are working on getting it out there again they did profound work about immersing children in fiction and what they did in the around you know the late 1990s early 2000s what they did then so much of that speaks to my recent research for an ma looking at the connections between um reading and writing and how little understood it is how criminally under little understood it is because of the silos within which we might work or the nature of research designs they were so ahead of the game i think well they might not see it that way but it felt that way when i read it because it taps into the sorts of things that we're looking at in reading fluency you know it's currently got a lot of a, a lot of momentum behind it but it does it in a really organic way as well it's embedded in certain practices that could become almost tokenistic or superficial in the classroom. Like, we're going to do some drama because we read this passage. We're going to freeze frame as it. Legitimate things to do, but they can be quite perfunctory or they can be really embedded. So they really talk about immersion. Um, people like Aidan Chambers tell me, who really gives you great guidance, classic book, probably the number one book I'd recommend, on how to have meaningful book talk. Mary Roach, who does profound stuff over in Ireland, um, absolute friend i'm honored to say but legend in terms of what she does from the very earliest years in terms of talking about pictures in books and you mentioned about virtual reality well picture books have such a legitimate place to play in terms of you know what you can do to extend understanding and comprehension and then you bring in text so that you're not just this is not dumbing down in the slightest used well following um, the sort of work of chambers following the work of mary you'll be really sound people like matt tobin online really good reference point and a lot of the people that do the reading for pleasure work so Teresa Kremen's quite a leader there people like Johnny Biddle and um, Sonia Thompson who we've worked with all of these things can coalesce to make a reading culture that that's really helpful so I'd say immersion high quality text 
there are so many people recommending. I'll go back again to Matt Tobin. He's got a brilliant picture book, Padlet. Um, Empathy Lab, fiction, and books for young children, but they've got great selections of novels. Um, one of their chosen books from recent years, Where the River Runs Gold, I've used, and it's Gold Dust. So I guess in summary, know your stuff, you know, some reading around the subject, um, approaches that really do allow children to see a world that they might not straight away access through print and then take it into print and um, the quality of the texts that are chosen. And then, of course, wrapped around all of that is the talk and the thought and the talk and the thought. And if we were to think about all of the fantastic recommendations that you've made so far, and I know you've given us lots of background reading that we can go and, and look into, but if we were to have two or three takeaway ideas that you would offer teachers so that they could begin to implement empathy in the classroom on a on a more simple level what what would you recommend that we do okay um i mean if you it's not always easy to read whole books you know i do because i it's, it's kind of my hobby but what i would say is you know twitter or other social media platforms for me it's twitter always there are some great people on there maybe we could make some recommendations alongside the reading list maybe we'll do a blog because we've got a hearts for learning blog um but basically one of the some some of the messages from people like Aidan Chambers is really simple. It's, you know, creating space, not rushing in. So one of the best prompts, if you're ever stuck for how to get a discussion going, is the title of Aidan Chambers' probably most famous book, Tell Me. Tell me about X. Tell me about Y. And we're seeing other people like Becca McEwen, their, their work on questioning the author. You know, having these sensitive discussions at just the right moment in a text, ideally about characters, that's really, really quite key. And their motivations or their experiences... Doing that and not feeling you've got to prepare 20 questions or you've got to have um, vocabulary question, inference question, prediction question, etc., etc. You might have a dash of that, but that you're actually creating space for real dialogue where people and, and, and supporting children to listen and learn to each other. But then you need the right stimulus. And it might not necessarily be a book always. It could be a really rich piece of art. I mean, some of the best conversations I've ever had were was looking at classical paintings in RE religious paintings because they're laden with symbolism and meaning and use of light and shade and whatnot but it's having the courage to sometimes step back from pushing on with the next explicit literacy objective and actually saying might there be more gains by having quality discussion and seeing who joins in quite quite freely and who needs some strategies to support them to come in and within that choosing text with the space for empathy and that's that's where i'm going to point back to empathy lab again and our conference, because those speakers are experts. And to be a bit cheesy and meta, the other thing I'm going to say is if you come to the conference, I've heard all the speakers by Stuart Lawrence, the Right Honourable Stuart Lawrence, speak. I'm really looking forward to that because that is such a, an honour to have him join us. But, for example, I've listened to Gemma Bagnall talk about her own mini background. And it was at Oxford Reading Spree. It was the first, the first time I heard her. She was just writing a journal from a workshop and she read it aloud and it was spellbinding. I'm actually, I swear to goodness, Mary Claire, I am getting tingles when I think about that moment. So Gemma, thank you for that gift. And then she was asked to speak the next year about representation of her culture in literature. And she showed horrific, horrific representations. And that is what we need to move on from. Because, you know, there is enough prejudice in this world and we need to shake up some of those 
dreadful misconceptions about people. So by coming to our conference, not only will you learn about texts that lend themselves to empathy and the importance of it to so many groups of children, you're going to have your own empathic reaction, I hope. I hope when you listen to Gemma, say, or Darren and talking about his work with children, or Farron, her work with CLPE, or Andrew Moffat, actually, as leaders, if you're a leader and you come and listen to Andrew Moffat, he has had to walk the talk like nobody else in terms of his work on No Outsiders. He has made, you know, national attention in terms of some of his battles and obstacles. And I think you'll have your own empathic response to him as a leader thinking, wow, I don't know how he quite made it through that. And he did, you know. So I swear that's not just a cheesy advert for the conference, but it's, it's not a bad <laughs> next step, actually. And it happens in January, January the 18th. And we, we're really looking forward to it. The early signs look like it's going to be our most popular conference by far. And that's just wonderful given its focus. It's a fantastic lineup of, of speakers. And actually, um, again, being cheesy, it's about diversity, but it's a fabulously diverse range of speakers also um, from, from a number of backgrounds and experiences. So I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to being part of the, the team for it as well. Would you be able to tell us a bit more about how we could find out more? Yeah, it has its own uh, landing page, as we call it in the trade, on our website. So you can go to heartsforlearning.co.uk. You could Google um, Hearts for Learning Primary English Conference 2022, and that will take you there. If you go to our Twitter account, um, you can follow us at Hearts English. So at H-E-R-T-S, as if Hertfordshire shortened, English. And you can't miss it. There's actually a pinned tweet that links to the conference site. We'll be blogging about that. It, please do follow up reading the blogs. There are blogs associated with the conference. And one that's just come out by my colleague, Teresa Clements. I, I'm going to just be really honest and personal. It meant the world to me. It's about um, some of the issues that surround talking about and interacting with children from um, with mixed ethnicities and that's my own family my wife is um, her heritage is Guyanese and yes just for anyone that needs to know Guyana is different to Ghana um, and <laughs> and you know my wife you know where this, this our situation where we've lived we've dealt with more than our fair share of racism and I have to say our children didn't really see themselves in books themselves and so, you know, read Teresa's blog because it's it's an incredibly good read. It was brilliant for me to see that topic handled. And you'll also get links there. So three options, the main page, the Twitter account and our blogs, which come out at least every fortnight. We have a scheduled blog, but we often write even more besides that because we've got a lot to say and because we care. Fabulous. And I know that um, although it's Hearts for Learning National Conference, it is certainly a national agenda. It's um, it's speakers and topics that are uh, relevant and very current for schools all over the country. So we would encourage everyone that can possibly try to come along. Um, thank you very much, Martin. It's been really fantastic speaking to you about empathy and and about all of those different uh, things that we can take into the classroom. So I've thoroughly enjoyed recording that with you. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. So thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, thank you so much to everybody for listening. And if you'd like to access more uh, resources and uh, other podcasts on similar topics and a whole range of topics, then you can access those on the Hearts for Learning website or on our Spotify playlist. And thank you very much from Ed Talks UK.